is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon, Monday the 16th of January. It's great to have you along. Have you been enjoying some of the summer fruits in the last few weeks? Obviously mangoes and grapes, also some of the stone fruit coming online. Berries are everywhere these days. I've got some good news and some bad news on that topic. We haven't seen prices this low ever for blueberries. It's, it's unbelievable that, that the prices have got so low. All our cost, input cost fertiliser uh, has nearly doubled and, uh, and here we are getting a less for our produce than we were 12 months ago. Happy days for blueberry lovers. Not so much for the producers. It's a tricky balance, isn't it? You'll hear more about that before one o'clock. Also today, getting a cow to produce a calf every year is a goal most NT pastoralists aim for, but it's not easy to know which cow will do that. So researchers are hoping to come up with a new simple sampling technique. Well, tail hair is great because you can pull it out and pop it in an envelope and send it in and store it in boxes under my desk currently. Um, so it's a very stable and easy to store sample. Keep listening to the Country Hour to learn more about that. And if you'd like to reach out today, get involved in the program. 0487 991057 is the SMS. 0487 991057. First up today, a Northern Territory cattle producer is trialling new ways to reduce carbon emissions from the livestock supply chain. Munro Hardy is working with the National Feed Co in Catherine to produce low emission livestock feeds and reduce the industry's carbon footprint. Max Rowley spoke with him about the trials and how it all came about. I first came to the Territory in 2006 and spent a lot of years sort of moving throughout the supply chain. I always had a, a bit of a dream to see it all from end to end, so I worked on breeding properties right through to backgrounding on floodplains through to quarantine yards and even voyages overseas. And I've seen a lot of challenges along the way and I think, you know, a couple of areas where we can improve as an industry and, and sort of that's where I've got to now. I'm, I'm really passionate about this industry and I've always been involved with, with cattle um, spent a few years flying and saw a bit of country across the territory as well doing that uh, and now saw an opportunity to to tie in and look at producing our feed and, and trying to create some efficiencies throughout the supply chain and, and looking at reducing our carbon footprint as well, making us more efficient and more sustainable along the way. And this is a bit of a trial site here at Carbine Park for you then. Um, what are you working on here and how does this fit into the, the bigger picture? Yeah, the Carbine Park is, is a bit of a trial for us. We're starting a program here where we're integrating with uh, the National Feed Co, uh, the pellet mill in Catherine. Um, so we're growing hay here that's going to be supplying the mill. And I'm now, as we're growing, I'm, I'm trying to baseline all our measurements. So we'll look at soil testing and carbon loads in the soil. Um, and then over time, through the years, we'll look at improving that, our soil health, uh, microbiology and, and carbon we'll start to monitor and measure along the way and then with the feed mill we're looking at producing a pellet that uh, is going to be sort of reduced carbon footprint pellet so helping growers to 
reduce their emissions and, and buy, I guess, from accredited and certified producers like ourselves who are making an impact and trying to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, so we're looking at three angles of that. We've, we're looking to buy local for a start, which we've always done with, with hay, but the rest of our ingredients as well, if we can grow that locally, then we're eliminating freight from our supply chain and, and carbon footprint. Secondly, we're looking at efficiencies in growth in our cattle. Um, so, you know, if we're looking at, at weaning programs, early weaning programs and early nutrition through to finishing programs, if we can eliminate the time to turn off, we can measure the difference in methane emissions between an animal turned off at 600 days compared to a benchmark of 700 days, for example. So there's 100 days less methane being emitted. And then the third part to it is adding a product to our pellet that actually changes the gut to reduce the methane emissions from an animal during the period that they're eating our pellets. Um, So we can obviously measure how much methane we're saving from, from the time that they're going through that feeding program. An additive, is that something like an, an asparagopsis? Or? Yeah, correct, absolutely. We're looking at asparagopsis, um, among a few others, uh, just to see which product's going to be best suited to us and, and this environment in the north. And by implementing you know, all these things, how much do you think you could reduce your carbon footprint here? Well, that's a very good question and a tough one to answer, but you know, at the moment we're going through a, a benchmarking phase, so we need to start with a benchmark for our operations, um, work out our whole supply chain of what our emissions would be, including freight from interstate, um, but then look at changes over time in our farming operations and in our milling and processing operations as well. But I mean, optimistically, we'd, potentially we could reduce our footprint by 50%. Yeah, right. And what's what's driving this for you? Is it economics? Is it social pressures? What's, what's the main driver in terms of this push for you? Well, for me, I suppose it's it's driving change in the industry and, and creating efficiencies and, and just making or pushing the industry forward as much as we can in any aspect we can. And I think there's a huge opportunity to do that here where a lot of people can benefit throughout the supply chain, right up and down the supply chain from from growers, producers, right through to live exporters, people in quarantine yards, we can use it the whole way through. Who else do you think can benefit from this work that you're doing? Well, firstly, I think producers definitely. Um, you know, they can create efficiencies through through weight gains of their cattle and, and turn cattle off earlier, which means they can run more mouths on the grass that they've got. We're seeing people now who are selling their cattle ex-depot or ex-yards, so they're going through a feeding program in the yards and some people are picking up 30 kilos a head on their animals, so there's there's big margins in, in some of these feeding programs. Uh, so I think definitely producers can pick up a lot there, um, but certainly exporters along the way as well. And then I think another angle for producers too, if, if we've got this data and we can demonstrate uh, what we're doing to reduce our impacts, then you know, we can we can access capital, we can improve our social licence as an industry across the north. As you said, you're, you're benchmarking at the moment and, and this is the start of the process, but when do you think you'll have some good data around what you're doing? Yeah, well, I, I guess we get through this um, this growing season first. Um, we'll cut our hay and then, you know, every every three months we'll be soil sampling. So we've, we've done our initial samples before we seed it. Um, we're doing a, a couple of trials as well through NT Farmers and the NT NRM um, with cost, composting trials on our pivot here and, and we'll try and work out 
what's giving us the best results on our country. Um, then uh, through our feedlot, we've got a mountain of, of manure that we can use to compost ourselves. And, and once we work out what works well, we'll start to, to utilise that a bit more on our growing country. And so I think we'll have varied results for a long time. And to get a, a clearer picture, I think, will take a couple of years before we, we really understand what's what's happening in the soil and, and through the supply chain as well. I think once we get through our hay season here, we'll be able to have our processing supply chain benchmarked, but then our growing, I think, is, is going to take a couple of years to, to work that out. Manu Hardy from Mutual Food and Fibre, based at Carbine Park near Catherine. He was speaking with Max Rowley. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. It's 19 to 1. The Tamworth Country Music Festival is on at the moment and this week celebrating the 51st Golden Guitar Awards. There are a number of people who have been nominated for multiple awards, including Amber Lawrence. She's up for six awards this weekend. This is her track, The Man Across the Street. Amber Lawrence, the man across the street. She's nominated for six awards at the Golden Guitars coming up this weekend. Casey Barnes, James Johnston and Adam Brandt are also nominated for six awards. It is coming up to quarter to one. Hello, my name is Leela and I born in Manangrida in 1963. Not from the hospital, but I born in Bush. And you're listening to this ABC Country Hour. Good to have you along this afternoon. One of the Territory's most popular private tourist destinations has shut its gates to the general public. We're talking about the Lorella Springs Wilderness Park in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. Dan, what's happened? Yeah, Michelle, so for those who might not have heard about it, Lorella Springs, it's a, a pretty large, uh, it's actually a pasture leaf out in the Gulf, northeast of Borrelula, but for the last 25 years or so, it's operated as a tourist destination. There's lots of springs and waterholes and good fishing on the place. And actually, the last few years have really been some of the busiest for uh, Lorella Springs with four drives and caravanners all sort of flocking to the place when uh, people couldn't go overseas or even leave the territory. Um, but over the weekend, Lorella's owners announced that this year it will only be open for guided tour groups. Uh, it'll be closed to uh, drive by visitors, just the general public um, on their own little adventure. Um, a statement from the owner, Rhett Walker, says that reviewing the 2022 season has led us to realise the impossibility of continuing with our current operating model and the need to restructure our tourism operations, which we can only do by suspending the drive-by market for this season. goes on to say only pre-booked tour guides will be permitted at Lorella for the 23 season, allowing supervised access to limited attractions through designated routes. He says, uh, we understand it will be a disappointment to many present, past and future independent drive-by customers, uh, but this decision will allow us to keep providing Lorella experience while working towards a better Outcome. Wow. Now, uh, the uh, Lorella Springs Facebook page has been flooded with messages from people all over Australia expressing sympathy with the Walker family and disappointment about this decision that mm-hmm. they've had to make. This currently, when I checked it a short time ago, over 2,000 comments oh, wow. on the page. So it is a really popular site. So yeah. uh, it's, it's sad to hear. 
Um, the Acting Chief Minister, Nicole Madison, she was asked about Lorella's closure this morning. Uh, this is what she said. This is a, a beautiful place, the Lorella Springs uh, Tourism Park. Uh, we are in continued conversations uh, with the company that runs that park to make sure that uh, we can have it available uh, as soon as possible open for the tourism season. They are blaming red tape and bureaucracy. What sort of red tape do remote tourism operators have to deal with? Uh, we're working with them through a raft of historic matters uh, and we are trying to give them as much support as possible to work through those from a range of different agencies. Uh, so we are actually, I've, I've met with them, I've certainly spoken to them myself uh, and tasked our agencies to sit down and work with them because it is an important tourism offering for people in that region. What do you mean by historic matters? Uh, they've just got a raft of different issues uh, you know, to go through. We're working through those with them. Uh, because we'd like to see them uh, be able to continue to run their very successful, wonderful business. That is Nicole Manison. She's currently the Acting Chief Minister, speaking there about uh, the closure to the general public for Lorella Springs earlier this morning. Uh, We did reach out to the owners of Lorella uh, for an interview to get them to tell us about their situation, uh, but they are declining all interview requests at the moment. Yeah, okay. So closed for this year. It doesn't say anything about future years, but but definitely this year, unless you're in a guided, organised tour group. Yes, that's it. They're currently uh, yeah, restructuring their tourism operations, as they say. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can read more on their Facebook page. Very good. Thank you for that, Dan. We'll keep you up to date if that situation changes. It's 12 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. I've got some bad news for stone fruit lovers now. As a result of the wet weather in New South Wales late last year, prices could be going up. Paula Charnock owns an orchard near Orange. She says apricots in particular have suffered. So unfortunately it's not a great apricot season. When the apricots were in flower we were having lots of rain and the bees just couldn't get out so we had um, very poor pollination and the ones that did set because the rain continued in the cold weather, uh, a lot of them just fell off. So we've got a very light apricot crop this year. And is that something that you've seen across a lot of your fruits that these kind of conditions have just been not very conducive for them? Yeah, so across the cherries, um, it's estimated that in some of the varieties across the district, 50% of them could have shed. So the the cherry crop was very light. Um, We've had a lot of disease pressure on on the other fruits, like the apples and the stone fruits. Um, The apples are going quite well now, but the stone fruit, it's just starting, we're just starting to pick it now. So it's all, the whole season's been quite late. That's Paula Charnock. She runs an orchard near Orange. Trevor Ranford is the Executive Officer of Stone Fruit Australia. He says that weather that's been experienced on the East Coast could lead to a price rise for consumers, but the prices will vary. You know, the consumer sees what uh, the, the retailer is uh, charging. Uh, I suppose, uh, you know, the real issue for, for growers is, well, are they getting a return on on their investment? And uh, at times, uh, yeah, they may not be. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, it's it's difficult uh, uh, to uh, to uh, necessarily uh, you know, say whether uh, you know it's uh, overly expensive or or not. Uh, yeah, I think the real challenge uh, for the industry uh, and growers, particularly. Uh, uh, as it is, I suppose, for, for everybody, and that's uh, the the increased uh, costs of production. So, 
you know, fertilisers, chemicals, uh, transport, uh, wages, all of these things have gone up. Uh, and uh, it's important that uh, growers are able to reflect those costs uh, within uh, what they're paid by uh, uh, the supply chain. That's Stonefruit Australia's Trevor Rantford speaking with Hamish Cole. So prices particularly uh, or potentially to rise for stonefruit, particularly apricots and pears. On the other hand, though, for blueberry lovers, time to celebrate. At some times of the year, fresh blueberries are probably considered a luxury item. You might uh, think twice about buying them, but these days... It'd be hard to leave them out of your shopping trolley. In recent days, major supermarkets have been selling blueberries for $2 a punnet or even less. Bob Benning is the co-owner of Benning Blueberries in Coffs Harbour. He says growers are really feeling the drop. We haven't seen prices this low ever for blueberries. It's it's unbelievable that that the prices have got so low, Uh, especially when you consider that um, labour... Uh, has gone up by probably 30 to 40 percent. Um, you know, diesel's gone up, packaging's gone up, all our costs, input costs, fertiliser uh, has nearly doubled. And, uh, and here we are getting less for our produce than we were 12 months ago. So what do you attribute such a, a dramatic drop in prices to? Um, it's an oversupply at the moment. Um, the, the drastic weather we had, uh, say, 12 months ago and, and two years ago with the flood and, and storm damage, has meant that the, the production has all come together uh, from different regions and different varieties. Um, we, we're finding that um, it, it, it's just Mother Nature, you know, it plays a major role in, in our production. And we get a few days of warm, good weather. All the, the fruits ripen at the same time. We get overcast, wet conditions, and suddenly the season's prolonged even further. So, so it's meant that, you know, different areas and different varieties have all come on at once, and, and hence the, um, the overproduction. And obviously we, we had a lot of hailstorms last year. Do you think that, that growers might have overcompensated for that as well and, and when it comes to their production? Definitely, definitely. Look, we're, we're all out there trying to um, get a bigger piece of the pie, so to speak. Um, and, and as you know, you know, berries have become very popular in Australia overall. Um, so, so we're trying to, to meet the demands of the market and we're going to find that now that we're going to have some periods of oversupply within within a year as well. Some analysts are also predicting that blueberries could possibly overtake strawberries as the most valuable berry crop in this next year. Do you do you foresee that happening? Um, yeah, when we talk about, like we said earlier on, the challenges with labour, to pick and, and harvest blueberries, it's a lot easier than harvesting strawberries. The, the eating experience, the, the new varieties that are coming out in the blueberry category um, are all adding to, to that being possible. You know, like we're talking about varieties now with crunch, um, with aroma, with an aftertaste in, in the blueberry category. So we're quite excited as growers to, to be able to supply the market with those new varieties. And, and when you know, people are going out and eating those berries, they're, they're quite happy with the experiences. So we're doing, there's a lot of work being done behind the line to, to, to make the berry, the blueberry category, the best in, in the berry category. Bob Benning is the co-owner of Benning Blueberries in Coffs Harbour. He was speaking with Tina Quinn. So, I mean, good news if you're a blueberry lover, but quite the pinch for farmers with those prices quite low, as low as two bucks a punnet or even less in some places. Bob Benning did say, though, he doesn't expect it 
uh, those low prices to last too much longer. So maybe enjoy them while they last. If you're a fan, it's five to one on the Country Hour. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. There's been a lot of rain in large parts of Queensland over the weekend. In North Queensland, some areas around Bowen have had more than 300 millimetres in the last 24 hours. There's also been a lot of rain in Western Queensland with more than 450 millimetres falling in the last few days around Jericho. Barcaldon Mayor Sean Dillon says... While for many the rain has been positive, in the epicentre there has been significant damage. The Friday rainfall and Saturday morning took a lot of the parts of our region through to between three and 400 millimetres and in some cases isolated falls of over 450. So uh, it did continue into the early weekend, but we've had since about Saturday lunchtime, uh, we've had some relatively benign conditions, not a lot of sun, but also not a lot of rain. What does 450 mil look like in your country? Yeah, in that, in that area um, where it's fallen, it, it, it looks like a lot of devastation, to be honest. You know, the first 250 millimetres was great and then to keep receiving it has just stripped literally dozens of kilometres, if not hundreds. We'll do this first surveys this morning to have a look at roads. But um, in a lot of the country where a very alluvial soil, we've just lost it entirely. Out in the paddocks, we've got lots of cattle who are in you know a bit of trouble there they're um they're falling through the surface they're bogging even though it's been a good season and cattle are strong there's a limit to what they can sustain and uh, so for the main most people have found the rain they've received to be fantastic but there is an epicenter of where this real heavy rainfall fell just slightly on the uh, western side of the great divide where they've um, they've probably had a touch too much uh, but we're still waiting on uh, water coming down the Alice River. It's been a couple of days since the rain fell, but uh, there's still a substantial body of water meandering its way down towards the Capricorn Highway between Jericho and Barcaldon and, and towards Barcaldon Town. So we're still going to have some flooding impact over the next couple of days. Um, we, we closed our roads network essentially on Wednesday, but that took a couple of days to finally grind to a halt. And I uh, imagine that there's going to be continued disruption, particularly on the road network over the next little while. Yeah, well, in, in places it'll be more than just disruption, it'll be total stop. There's areas there where we see videos have been set through by chopper pilots to us of a section of road over five kilometres long, just completely destroyed, you know, as in washed out more than a metre deep, the full width of the road. So we'll be several days, weeks cataloguing that and then and months, if not years, in totally restoring that area. Are you expecting livestock losses? Oh, definitely. Uh, we are aware of some already. The, the full extent of that, though, has been very difficult. It's one of those things that uh, livestock producers have been able to to affect some movements, but 
in some cases, and, and I experienced this firsthand on Sunday myself, the best thing to do to a lot of these cattle is just leave them as they are. They're, they're not under threat of being washed away by water in a lot of cases. Some of them just, just need a chance to uh, get the crust back on the ground so that they can move safely. And the more you attempt to move them, the more they fall through. Some producers have had to move cattle out of the road of water or get them out of um, uh, standing in water. And obviously uh, that there's some challenges that come with that as well. Hopefully the temperature rises a little bit. We've had some um, relatively cool um, and sustained wind since the rain has left and and that's not good for livestock either. So we're really hoping that uh, a bit of warm, typical January weather can return and and help these cattle warm up as they uh, come out of a period of four or five days of wet and cool weather. Are you anticipating any further falls in the next few days? No, we... brief is that it's not going to be very substantial if at all rainfall. However, the nature of things when it's as humid and the activity is around like it is, you couldn't rule it out. But this depression's um, been a godsend for most of my region. Uh, It's just a few that are probably in that area that are keen to see a little bit of it given back. But um, no, I don't think we're going to see too much more in the next 48 to 72 hours. But who knows, you give it a week and um, a lot can change. Buck Alden Mayor Sean Dillon speaking with Callie Buchanan. Quiet the rainfall in Queensland over the weekend. And you'll take a look at what happened here in the Territory after the news, catching up with the Bureau of Meteorology just after five past one. It's one o'clock. Hi, I'm Casey Townsend from Hazard Station. We have the little miniature cattle and you're listening to the Country Hour. Hello, hello, Michelle Stanley's my name. It's good to have you along. Now, whether you're listening online on the ABC Listen app and hello to you on the podcast as well. This half hour, I'm really keen to hear if you've ever taken part in a world record attempt. 0487 991057. Text in, let me know what it was. Have you been on, I don't know, what is it? Ute, dog on a ute? Some kind of ute muster? Anything like that? Before half past one, you'll hear about a a record attempt which took place over the weekend. It was sort of in Australia, but it was also across the world. It was so exciting to see photos going up, not just from Tasmania, not just from Australia, but from at least 25 countries from all over the world. It's just been astonishing. 25 countries across the world. You'll find out what that record was and whether they broke it. But if you've taken part in a world record attempt, 0487 991057, very keen to hear about it. Let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology first, though. Billy Lynch is with you this afternoon. Hi, Billy. G'day, Michelle. Bit of rainfall about over the weekend. Uh, what have we had? Yeah, um, let's go through it. I'll cherry pick a few of the better ones. Um, So across the daily district, um, these are going to be 72-hour rainfall totals. Um, We've seen the Adelaide River at Dirty Lagoon pick up 65. Um, Another one, Geriatric Park, 70 millimetres, Marakai Crossing, 46 um, further or into the Arnhem District, Naywilly had 62. The Roper MacArthur area had, um, or at Borolula Airport, 89 millimetres. Conway's is coming with 98, and Nutwood Downs 100, um, which I think that was a 24 hour total oh. on Saturday morning. Um, 
a little further south in the Victoria River District, we've got uh, the Bulu River, 80 mils, Coolabar, 87, um, Kalkarinji, 39. Um, that's just a few. Obviously, there's there's more out, out there as well. Yeah, um, and some of the the you know the not official ones I saw on um, social media. Someone posted 90 millimeters at the Little Roper Stock Camp at Mataranka, and apparently the bridge went over overnight. Um, it came down, but it did did rise. So, fair bit, um, yeah, fair bit about by the looks. Yeah, no, interesting. Um, so the. The picture, the weather pattern at the moment, um, which is what has been in place over the weekend as well, is a, a trough extending across the, the Gregory and the Carpentaria districts. So around that trough is where most of the thunderstorms have been forming in the afternoon and evening period. Um, and obviously catchments, the, the land is quite wet as well. So any rainfall will cause creeks and streams to, to rise relatively quickly. Um, there is the risk that uh, those storms forming in that trough today um, could be slow moving. So perhaps some isolated, further isolated heavy falls of you know around that 80 millimetre mark or thereabouts. Um, so today it's principally between about Catherine and Elliot um, and across to the, the WA and the Queensland border. Um, Further south there, though, um, once we get south of about Tennant Creek, the, the moisture starts to dry up a little bit. So there'll be just a slight chance of seeing some afternoon showers or a thunderstorm between about Tennant Creek and Tea Tree today. And then south of Tea Tree, it's mostly sunny conditions and, and quite hot temperatures too, with temperatures climbing up into the high 30s. How are the next few days going to look in central Australia? More of that warm, relatively dry weather? Yeah, probably heating up just a little bit further. Temperatures creeping up into the, the low 40s, um, particularly south of Alice Springs tomorrow. And then that heat building right across the southern half, so even up to about Tennant Creek, temperatures in that high 30s to low 40s. Um, this is ahead of a trough, which is going to come through the southern districts on Wednesday. So that trough could just bring a slight chance of some showers and thunderstorms across those southern districts. Until Thursday, the new ridge pushes in. We'll get some slightly cooler air in the south, but still going to remain pretty hot through central districts, the Barkley and the Tanami. Um, so that's sort of southern NT for the next few days. Northern half of the NT, that trough is going to remain roughly where it is. It might drift a little southwards into the northern Barkley over the next few days. Um, but the rainfall is really most likely through that Gregory and Carpentaria district, as well as generally picking up across the top end. But, um, you know, especially the, the western top end, the daily district, um, not expecting a significant increase. Um, and, you know, particularly if there's people listening around Darwin and the rural area, um, we're not expecting a significant increase in the rainfall during the next few days. Just looking at the radar now, the <laughs> It's pretty bright with colour. I mean, obviously not around Darwin, as, as you've just kind of touched on, but um, there are some spots of sort of orange and, and red even. Um, but I noticed there's no warnings in place, so not too concerned about flood risks? No, not at the moment. Um, definitely it's, it's a little bit more active today than it was yesterday. So, yeah, the radars are a little busier, but... Um, most of those showers are not looking too heavy. Um, I think that the biggest risk will be 
between Catherine and Elliot this afternoon with any thunderstorms. Um, but, you know, we'll keep a close eye on things for sure. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a bit of a weak monsoonal influence happening through the Arafira Sea at the moment. Um, so, you know, it's not really having a direct impact on the weather across the Northern Territory, but it's just kind of lurking to our north. Um, the one thing that we are sort of tracking is uh, this potentially a monsoonal surge, an increase in the monsoonal winds coming through Indonesia from the middle of the week. Um, what that does, it looks like it's probably going to move through the Arafura Sea and then just keep going straight through to the Coral Sea. Um, so North Queensland might get a bit of a pickup in the monsoon. Uh, at this stage, I'm pretty confident that the Northern Territory is not going to see any monsoonal weather this week. Um, but we are expecting the monsoon trough to, to reform through the Coral Sea and then probably extending back into the Gulf of Carpentaria around Thursday um, and then sort of remaining sort of in that area um, into the weekend. Uh, it may push a little further north into the Arafura Sea over the weekend, but um, yeah, if anyone was hanging out for the monsoon, it looks like it's probably going to pass us by this yeah. next little burst. Just before the news, we were talking about rainfall in Queensland over the last couple of days, so it looks like they're set to get a little bit more. Um, is there any anything else on the radar that is more likely to come over um, the Territory or not for the next little while? Look, with that set up, with the, when the monsoon trough kind of positions itself just to the north of the, the top end, um, what we, we get is a pretty good setup for um, thunderstorms pushing up from the southeast, uh, score lines. So despite the monsoon sort of being nearest but not quite on us, it can still be a fairly wet setup for the northern half of the top end. So, you know, I would say that the chances of rainfall are still going to increase towards the end of the week without it being labelled a monsoon. Um, and that's probably the most significant thing that, that's going to happen. Uh, within that monsoon trough, there's always the risk of a tropical low forming somewhere as well. Um, but our tropical cyclone outlook for the next seven days remains very low. Okay. Well, Billy Lynch, thanks for that. We'll have to keep an eye on some of that rainfall. Uh, he's from the Bureau of Meteorology. It's 14 past one. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your, your emergency broadcaster. G'day, I'm Brad Inglis from Sturt Plain Station, south of Dunmara on the Stewart Highway, and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. Yes, you are. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. It is quarter past one. Now, getting a cow to produce a calf every season is the goal for most cattle producers in the north. But finding out if a cow will do that can be a slow process of elimination. So imagine if you could pull a tail hair, test it, and know if the cow will deliver a healthy calf every year or not. That's what University of Queensland research fellow Karen Eyre is working towards. And as she explains to Callie Buchanan, nutrition 
is key. When you've got these animals on the same diet, you might have a steer that can continue to produce. It might be gaining weight on a really low quality diet, whereas its mate in the next pen is losing weight. And it's the same with cows. You've got cows that will reliably wean a calf every year, and then you've got their herd mates that might be calving every two years or every three years um, and we're just really interested in trying to figure out why that happens and how we can use that to increase the productivity of the herd. So what do we know about the role of nitrogen in that variability? So what we think, and this is not um, confirmed, is that it's actually the nitrogen recycling system within the animal that is varying. So some animals are just better at getting the available nitrogen from the diet, um, absorbing it from the rumen and returning it to the rumen where it can be used for um, microbial protein production and making more muscle or going towards the fetus milk production than others. Has your work looked at any variabilities between, say, the Indicus and the Taurus as well? Uh, So we are just starting to sort of look at that more. We've got 10 properties across northern Queensland and the Northern Territory that we're focusing on doing intensive interventions and there is a range of cattle breeds ranging from purebred Boss Indicus, Angus, Boss Indicus crosses, Drought Master and we're looking at the differences between those. Are you at the point in any of this work where you're getting some indication of how practice change might be able to influence some of these variables? Yes, we're working with really switched on producers who are very keen to support their cows, whether that's putting some supplement out. And the really good, great thing with working directly with producers is we get an idea whether the things that we are trying are actually practical and fit with their management systems. Because we can come up with something absolutely fabulous in a research setting and if that is impractical to implement, um, it doesn't make it into the industry. Um, We're also really interested in looking at whether we can predict nitrogen use efficiency using stable nitrogen isotopes and tail here. So we've proved that we can relate the isotope concentrations in the tail here to um, previous production levels but now we're collecting, I've got 2,000 tail hairs <laughs> sitting on my desk from this year's heifers and uh, we need to analyse them and see if we can predict their reproductive efficiency. We'll try and follow them through for the next couple of years and see how they go to see if we can pick those ones and really identify those animals that are going to consistently produce a calf which reduces the number of non-productive animals that um, producers are carrying and then the eventual goal is we could collect those tail hairs from heifers before they're joined for the first time and that would allow producers to select animals that are going to be more efficient to start with. So you could eventually get to the point where you have a diagnostic test where you can tell whether this is going to be the kind of animal that would need extra supplementation or maybe just doesn't fit with your breeding program and before you've made that investment of joining them have that intervention. Absolutely, because this does carry across to your steers and stuff. We're trying to look at whether it's heritable and whether that can be used as a tool for better selection for this environment because we've got great feed efficiency selection and we've got some EBVs and things, but mostly for boss tourists and mostly for 
better like less harsh environments than what we're actually operating in for a lot of Australia. Is it ultimately the end goal of having a more productive cattle industry in northern Australia? Yes that is the goal Um, and also with increasing production per animal and increased efficiency you're also reducing the environmental impact of um, nitrogen excretion. So these animals that are more efficient in their nitrogen use also excrete less nitrogen. So nitrous oxide is a potent greenhouse gas. It's um, a much smaller component than methane which is in the media all the time but it is more potent than methane and every little bit helps. Um, It also is better for reef quality. You've just got less nutrients flowing out of the system Um, and if we can transfer that through to the steers going into feedlots, it helps with manure management and um, emissions from manure in feedlots. It's a big issue in the dairy industry as well. Are you looking for any input from producers at this point? Yes, we are. We've got um, our 10 main producers, but I'm always interested in people contacting me and I'm very lucky we go to the Beef Up forums and things and we talk and I always get people coming up and offering me tail hair, which is fantastic. (laughs) What do you do with the tail hair when you're done with them? Well, tail hair is great because you can pull it out and pop it in an envelope and send it in and store it in boxes under my desk currently. Um, So it's a very stable and easy to store sample and easy to collect. The important thing that I'd like people to realise is that we're actually looking at sections of the tail hair itself. It's not like genotyping where you're only interested in the bulb. So if you're collecting it, don't trim it and collect them before they're being tailed. I bet the postman has lots of weird questions when he gets deliveries for you. Yeah, they're they're fairly used to uh, random things coming through the post, the university postal system, I think. That's Karen Eyre. She's a research fellow at the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation. She was speaking with Callie Buchanan. It's 21 past one. On Friday, you heard from the Mayor of Catherine, who called for plans for a second high-level bridge to be built over the Catherine River to be sped up. Liz Clark says she was spurred on by the destruction of the bridge at Fitzroy Crossing, which has cut off much of the Kimberley from the rest of WA. This is what she said. If the Catherine Bridge is cut, then no one can go anywhere. The only way we can get anything in is um, by flying things in because um, in the 98 flood, it was cut altogether. A weather event can happen at any time. So, and, And because the weather events are so unpredictable, you just don't know when it's going to happen again. Acting Chief Minister Nicole Manison was asked what she thought of the about the need to speed up the construction of a second high-level bridge in Catherine. This was her response. Catherine is such an important part of our region. It is an economic powerhouse of the Northern Territory and it's an important part of our connectivity, of course, to the West. Uh, so... Uh, We do work with the Mayor of Catherine and, of course, the Catherine Town Council to look at their infrastructure requirements and uh, we'll sit down and we'll continue those discussions as we we had with flood mitigation, uh, with future town planning where we've done a lot of work to get people out of the flood zones and to put new development out to the east. And with regards to uh, what the Mayor is talking about, we will continue those discussions. But um, that type of infrastructure is going to be significant. It's something we'll need Commonwealth involvement as well, uh, but we'll certainly continue discussions with them. 
Acting Chief Minister Nicole Manison speaking with Felicity James at a press conference earlier today. 23 past one on the country hour. Let's have some Johnny Cash. It's five feet high and rising. Johnny Cash, five feet high and rising. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Have you ever taken part in a world record attempt? More than 1,200 female beekeepers successfully set a record for the most photos of women beekeeping uploaded to social media in 24 hours. That was followed by a second world record at a live event in southern Tasmania, with beekeepers travelling from around the country to join Anita Long and Jenny McLeod from Sister Hives Australia. Co-organiser Jenny McLeod says the response was astonishing. It was so exciting to see photos going up, not just from Tasmania, not just from Australia, but from at least 25 countries from all over the world. It's just been astonishing. So this was an attempt to break a record for the most photos of women beekeeping uploaded to social media in 24 hours. How did it all work for you? Um, It's been quite incredible. We've been working with an accredited um, international or based in Tasmania, but working all over the world, uh, world record company, Extreme Excellence. Uh, and we have found working with them to be magnificent. They've allowed us to set a world record with them. And through that process, we've been able to change the face of beekeeping in one big loud clap. So by that, you mean just having so many women involved in beekeeping? Absolutely. And I think there's always been women beekeepers. It's not a mystery to anyone that's a beekeeper. We know that we're out there and we know that we're doing this. I think that we're not always visible in beekeeping. It has been traditionally a male-led industry, um, but this was an opportunity for us to say, come on, women, make yourself visible. We want to see you. We want to see you beekeeping. We want to see what you do. Um, And that's what this world record has allowed us to do. Where were some of these women? Oh, goodness, we had women from Mongolia, uh, Moldova, Japan, all over the US, all over the UK, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and uh, one woman from Ukraine who's also going to be part of our documentary. Now, you had to have 1,200 female beekeepers to successfully set this record. Uh, How many do you think you got in the end? So this record's actually never been set before, Fee. So this is a first time. Um, we, were t- we were aiming to get 1,000 women registered. We've had well over that amount registered. I think it's creeping up to more like 1,500 or 1,600 women registered. And what happened with the digital event is that the posts went up and how that, those impacts were tracked through an impact, like a system, and um, online. And we were able to see how many people we reached over that 24-hour period, which was absolutely mind-blowing um, for us. 2.8 million people were impacted by the posts that women had shared all over the world. Tell me about the woman in the Ukraine. That must have been mm. tricky for her. And how did she sort of get onto this? It's amazing. I think... Talking to her, we we did get a chance to meet with her on Zoom and and many other participants just before the event. And she was telling us she was listening to bombs falling around her apiary while she'd get up the next day and go and check her bees. But she was also a researcher building uh, and researching how to make a robotic hive, which just sounds so fascinating. And for us sitting here in Australia, 
you know, we're so sheltered from all of those tensions that are happening in the world. And to hear her carrying on with her life like normal was just, you know, it's hard to imagine. So she got a photo to you? She did. She certainly did. Wow. Wow. And did she sort of mention what it was like beekeeping there at the moment? Look, she didn't talk so much about that. And I think she spoke a lot about building the robotic hive. And I think I can only imagine, or I can't really imagine, but I think trying to have a normal life uh, while you're in a war zone, it'd be the most traumatic experience. I I can't imagine. We, We didn't ask her too much about what it was like. Just listen to her research. That was Jenny McLeod speaking with Fiona Breen. Jenny McLeod is the co-organiser of two world record attempts which were attempted at the weekend. The most photos of women beekeeping uploaded to social media in 24 hours and also an in-person world record at the same time. That is it from me for the Country Hour today. I'll catch you again tomorrow from 12.30.